We talked about this and this idea of the church being the present expression of the kingdom and how is that kingdom manifest presently in the church and it's manifest, number one, in the presence of the king. The king is in our midst. Wherever the king is, the kingdom is. That's what he said in Luke 17. He said the kingdom is in the midst of you. It's in your midst. It's right here where you can see it and lay hold of it. When Jesus said the kingdom's at hand, literally it was because he brought the kingdom. You have the king, you've got the kingdom, I promise you. Because whatever it is, you have his authority, you have his power, you have his provision. Whatever it is, the king possesses it. This king does. Now that may not be true in every kingdom but it is in this kingdom. There are some kings that whenever you, you talk about the, the kingdom, they don't possess it all. They have to go here. They have to go there. They have to get this. They have to get that. They have to call on this person or that person but not our king. Our king has it all. He owns it all. He is all. In him is all. He doesn't have to reach somewhere for provision. He is the provision. He doesn't have to call for a doctor. He is a doctor. Go Glory to God. He doesn't have to ask somebody to take care of the circumstances. He's the sovereign who is the head over all. He doesn't need to appeal to another authority. He's the supreme authority. Wherever you've got the king in this kingdom, you've got the kingdom. Because he is the embodiment of that kingdom. And that, I tell you, Jesus is present. It's seen three ways in the church. Firstly, it's seen in, is in employment. He has employed us. He has put us to work. He has commissioned us. He has given us a work to do in this world. God doesn't save you and give you comfort. God doesn't save you and, and just say that, uh, you know, you just go now and do what you want and try to live a nice, clean life and do the best you can. He saves you and gives you work to do and says, hey, I want you to preach the gospel to every creature and I want you to disciple the, the people that are converted. I want you to disciple them. I want you to teach them to keep the things that I've commanded you. And he said, I'm with you in this enterprise. I'm with you always to the end of the age. So right now, the promise is in this age in which you and I live. If you and I are busy about the preaching of the gospel and the discipling of people and seeing the word confirmed, then Jesus is a promise to be with us. He's given us his word. I will be with you. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe that when we're preaching to someone the gospel. If we're telling the truth, we got to trust God to touch that heart. If we're ministering the word, we got to trust God to reach in and do his part. If he's with us, he's with us. We don't have to see him. We believe him. More blessed is the man that has not seen and believed. And we ought to know that when we preach and we disciple people, we need to quit trying to think that we can live everyone's life for them. I'm not here to live your life. I'm doing about all I can do to live mine. I promise you that. I'm not here to, to, uh, to, to have faith for you. I'm not here to be your source of faith. I'm not here to be your healer. I'm not here to be your sustainer. That's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can provide that. And we got to know that our business, we got to be conscious of it, that we are here to build the church of Jesus Christ through the preaching and teaching of his word. And by seeing that word confirmed, and I preached about that and shared with you that message, and I want to deal now with the second way tonight that the Lord is present. His presence is seen in the church. His presence is seen in the church, number one, in employment. That's what I preached to that. Number two, His presence is seen in the church in judgment. 
This is a big one. And let's, let's look at some things. They're not a familiar scripture, but I'd like for us to take a fresh look at it. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, if you will. Now, I will come down to verse 15 and there read in a moment, but I would like to just back up for a moment so we might see the context in which Matthew has placed this and, and the surrounding um, passage and so we can understand how that this is being dealt with. It hasn't been long. He has been to the Mount of Transfiguration. They have seen the glory of the Lord. He has, they have spoken of, as one gospel writer mentions, they have spoken of his exodus from this earth. The King James Version uses the word decease. Moses and Elijah spoke of his decease, but the word is literally exodus. So they spoke of basically how he was going to leave the earth. He was on the mountain. The glory of God was there. He could have just ascended right then and there. But he, we want, he will not exit from the Mount of Transfiguration. He will exit from Mount Calvary. That will be the place and the manner in which Christ will live. It's glorious days for them. They have seen things but it's, it's also caused a bit of uh, ripple among them. There has now become a, a bit of jealousy and envy among the apostles of the Lord, because three of them were privy to a vision the other nine did not get to see. Three of them got taken to the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Moses and Elijah. Now you say, well, that wouldn't mean anything to me. Well, no, I don't know about that. Yeah, I think that'd have been a pretty, pretty uh, inspiring time, if you ask me, to see the Lord and his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. They're literally here. I mean, how would you like to be in a place and see the glory of the risen, or the, the living Christ at that moment and see his glory? And you're sitting there, and you're standing there mesmerized by it all, and all of a sudden, out of the sky comes a voice, an audible voice that says, This is my son, my beloved son, hear him. Woo! Glory, how could you mess that up? How could you not want that? And you, you've got to know that when you're in that place, you're special. But I'm telling you, God doesn't give you special experiences to exalt you above others. He gives you special experiences so that you can be an encouragement and an edification unto others, not to cause envy and conflict, but to encourage and edify the body of Christ. And that's where they've come from. When he comes off the mountain in chapter 17, you know, he rebukes the devil and casts the devil out of a young boy and deals with the father and the issues that have gone on there. And then they've come to Capernaum in verse 24, and there's a question about tribute money. This tribute is the only time it's here in the New Testament. This word translated tribute is, is the Greek word for uh, double drachma. It's really in Greek the word uh, uh, drachman or something. Drachman, uh, didrachman I think is how you say it. And it is the idea of a particular coin that was not played, paid to the Roman government but it was paid to the temple. This was the temple tax mentioned back in Exodus that the half shekel that every male had to bring and they wondered about Christ. They've asked Peter, does your master pay tribute? In other words, is he going to bring his tax and, and, and that, that temple uh, uh, offering that is mandated and bring it and put it into the temple? It would be used for sacrifices. It would be used for, for the things that were necessary in the service of the temple. And so uh, Simon is taken back a little bit by that. You know, we often get defensive and when there's a question, we can 
answer and someone uh, asks us something and it almost embarrasses us because we don't have an answer or, or someone has uh, kind of sideswiped us with something and, 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 and we just didn't ever come back. And it almost looks like possibly the Lord could be a little delinquent here. Hey, the Lord hasn't got this done and maybe Peter's been caught up with all that's going on. He's forgotten about it. And they've asked if the Lord's going to pay his half shekel into the temple. And so when he comes in, he's going to have to talk to the Lord about that. And the Lord just preempts him and he asks him a question. He says, Peter, I want to ask you something. The kings of the earth, do they take tribute from children or strangers? Peter says, well, just of strangers. Jesus said, then the children are free. That's just another way of saying the kings don't tax their own kids. In other words, in the scope of things, Jesus was simply saying that rulers don't tax their own family. Now, we were talking about the temple tax. Now, you got to understand how Jesus, well, how's that, what's that got to do with Jesus? Because Jesus has already called that. He said, this is Father's house. That temple is Father's house. Oh, yes. And it was mandated there for the maintenance of that temple. But Jesus is the son of the Father. And the Father doesn't put a tax on the son. The son is free. Oh, but they don't get it. They don't see that. But Jesus said, lest we should offend them. He said, we're going to pay it. So he gives Peter some instruction to go fishing and, uh, and get some tax money or some tribute money, some temple half shekel money and turn it in. But he was, it, there was a note here that lest we should offend, we don't want to be a stumbling block to them. So we're going to pay this. They don't get it yet. They don't see who Jesus is. So we'll pay this. Then he comes to talk about children at that time. Matthew will say there's disciples that came and asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now remember, this is just on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration. They probably feel the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They've been on the mountain with him and seen his glory. They've heard the voice from heaven. They must have been great because he separated them from the other nine and took them up. And you know what? They could kind of boast a little bit. Well, if we'd have been here in the valley, we would have cast that devil out. Those nine men, disciples, been down there, couldn't cast that devil out. Well, the other three, they wouldn't have done any better either. But, uh, but they at least, uh, they could at least maintain that possibly they could have cast them out because they had not been given opportunity to do so. But now they're wondering about who's the greatest. And the Lord didn't say Peter. He didn't say James. He didn't say John. He didn't say Simon, uh, the other Simon that's one of the 12. No, he just, he reached over there and he got a little kid that was hanging around. Children hung around the ministry of Jesus. How about that? And he called that little child unto him. You know the story. He set him in the midst of him. He says, right here it is, fellas. I want you to look good and hard. You see this little lad? He's just hanging around the outskirts. He don't talk much, say much. He just mesmerized by what's going on. He said, I'm going to tell you right now and if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you got to get like this kid right here. You got to quit worrying about the mountain and start worrying about right here. Get this kind of mindset. This this kind of attitude, this kind of spirit, this kind of innocence and purity. And he says, I'm telling you right now, whoever would offend one of these little ones. I wonder sometimes what children think about us adults and somehow the times the way we act. Yeah, I wonder about that. 
Sometimes as they sit back and listen to us, don't you ever think that your children don't have some insight into what's going on. They listen. And they pick up on things that are going on in the house. My, my, my wife has said many a time, uh, I've, I've heard her say that, that, and I'm just going to enlighten you a little bit. She could always tell when there was trouble in the home by the, the spirit of the children in her Sunday school class. Little child come into the class and the little child, three, four-year-old is troubled. I'm going to tell you the only reason a three or four-year-old is troubled is because mom and daddy are troubled. Because they don't know trouble. They got no concept of what's going on in the world. There's only one source from which a three-year-old can be troubled or a six or a seven-year-old, and that's mama and papa. All right, there is no other source. They don't pay the bills. They don't worry about putting groceries on the table. They don't care about the creditors. They don't own a credit card. They don't have all of this mess. There's only one way they can perceive there's some problem in life, and that's because mom and daddy are not dealing with their pressures very well. Mom and daddy's not dealing with life stress very well. Mom and dad's got some anxiety going on. Mom and dad's been fussing with one another and the child's picked up on it. It's affected that. Whenever you have a child that comes in they're joyful and they're happy, you know there's happiness in the home. Children ought to be able to feel that in my home there's peace. In my home there's security. In my home there's no worry because mommy and daddy love Jesus. And so he goes to talk about offending one of these little children. These little children possess such greatness. And he said, I'm telling you, I don't want you to offend them. You got to be careful about that. One of these little ones of the Lord about offending them. Be better for a millstone to be hanged around your neck. So again, he mentioned this idea of offense. He didn't want to offend that temple crowd because they were ignorant and didn't understand. And now he takes this little one that's innocent and says, I don't want you to offend them. I don't want you to cast something in their path that basically makes Christianity look bad so that they would be discouraged from following Christ because of your actions and your attitudes. In other words, if they say, oh, so after you live for Jesus, that's what you can expect. I mean, when a 14 and 15 year old is at the beginning of their life and they're living for Jesus and they look at the church and you got a, someone that's been serving him for 40 years and they look at their life and they're old and they're cranky and they're contrary contrary and they're mean and they're, and, and they're just full of bitterness and they say well that's what I got to look for that's what it gets for you 40 years of serving Christ they ought to be able to look and say my 40 years look how sweet they are look how wonderful they are look how much love is filled in their heart look how much faith has filled their life that's what I got to look forward to good life ahead and so he talks about the seriousness of this offense and talks about because that they're going to come in verse 7. The offenses are going to happen. He said, but woe be to the man by whom it comes. It is better to be the offended than the offender. Amen. Understand? It is far better to be the offended than the offender. But know something. Sometimes we have this dreamy world. We imagine children who can forever play together in this world and in this life without any conflict. We imagine churches that never have challenges and never have offenses between brothers and so that conflict arise in the church. 
The Lord never promised in this life a world without offense. He says right here, they're coming. Mark it down. They're coming to children. They're coming to adults. They're going to happen, okay? In this world, offenses are coming. Sin is a reality, and it's going to be committed in this world. But the church has a solution for it. The church has a way of dealing with it. And we as parents following the Word of God have a way to deal with it. But I've seen this. I've seen this kind of a, a utopia mindset. In the, in, the, in the Christian world, I've experienced it in my, in my, in my, in my history as a pastor. Years and, and years and seeing it in numerous various places that, that we get sometimes a false expectation that because I'm a Christian, I should never be offended. That in my church, there will never be anyone in the church who will ever hurt me. There will never be anyone in the church. There will never be a conflict to rise among us because we are the saints of God and we will never be offended that our children will play together and there will never be a problem and there will never be an issue. Wake up. You're in a world where offenses come. You're in a world where there's a tempter and the devil tempts children as well as adults. The devil doesn't say, oh, they've arrived at the age of 16. Now I can start tempting them. He'll tempt them as long as they have any kind of intellect so he can do that. Seven-year-olds, six-year-olds, five-year-olds, if they have any kind of sense at all, he will tempt them. And they don't know how to fight him off. And why should we expect them to do it when the adults are losing the battle? Hello? And so I look around. The Bible does not promise us a church free of offense, but he gives us his presence to deal with offense. That in the church, it can be dealt with, it can be judged, and there is a process by which we can take care of things, and we will see peace uh, maintained within the body of Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on again to say that if you are one who is something is causing you to offend um, and it's, it's constantly causing you to be stumbled and it's coming from your own being, if you will. Sometimes we cause our own self to stumble. Sometimes it's not what others do to us, it's what we do to ourselves. Yes. It's our own hand. That is, something that we're doing causes us to stumble. It's our own eye. Right. Sometimes it's a perspective. Sometimes it's the way we think about things. I'm telling you, a wrong perspective can cause you to stumble. Man. You can be offended. You can be easily offended. And you can be led astray because you've got a wrong outlook on something. You've got a wrong perspective. If you have wrong expectations for the body of Christ, then when those expectations are not met, you are going to be disappointed and you're going to be offended. But the reason you're offended is not because of the offense as much as it is your expectation was wrong. I do expect from my brethren love. I do not expect from my brethren a sense of perfection where their knowledge is perfect or their strength is perfect. I understand that when my brother gets tired, he can be more sorely tempted and more apt to, to maybe snap at me or to maybe speak to me very quickly. I, but I know this. My brother's heart is right. My brother's heart is filled with love and I will not fret myself over such things because I know what it is to get tired. I know what it is to be pushed to your limits. I know what it is to be at the end of your rope and someone steps on your last raw nerve. 
We're not God. We don't have infinite ability. I'm not saying that you have to give in to that. I'm telling you that God can help you and you can grow in grace so that those moments become less and less in your life because you understand how to live in the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that we look and understand one thing, that what prevails in the church of Jesus Christ is not an absence of offense, but a presence of love that overcomes the offense. And it will never be the offense that will destroy us. It will be the lack of love that destroys us. Understand? You got to get that as you come in. And that's why he says, if you're tripping yourself up, if your hand's offending you, if your eye's offending you, if your foot's offending you, get rid of it. Change your perspective. Change your outlook. Change the way you think. Get rid of whatever you're doing. Stop doing what you're doing. If it's making you weaker, you don't need it. If it's dragging you down, get rid of it. Oh, I can't do that. Why can't you? You must. You must. Your salvation and peace depend on it. So he goes on. So again, it's in this context about offenses taking place. And he comes and emphasizes again about keeping these little ones and maintaining those little ones and making sure that they're not offended. Can I tell you something? A church, a church that lives by such a standard and in such a manner so as not to offend children is a church that's living in the presence of the Lord. It's the church that's losing their children is the church that's failing. But the church that's keeping its children, the church whose children are growing up and saying, I want this forever. I want to stay in this forever. I want to see and have what Papa's got. I want what Grandpa's got. I'm telling you, this is the life for me. And they see in the life of the adults, they see in the life of Mama and Papa, they see a glory. They see a consistency. They see a victory. They see a love. They see a truth. They see compassion. I'm telling you, then they are encouraged to follow Jesus but when we've got a church and it's discouraging children and turning away children we are destined for failure we are destined for doom and destruction and we've got to understand that it's the church that is able to keep its children and keep them from turning from Christ is the church that's on the right course living in the presence of Jesus Christ I'm telling you you can judge the spirit of the church by its children So now, he says, I don't want any one of these little ones to perish. God wants these little ones to live for him. These little kids back here that don't even understand my message tonight. They're just here. They're just happy to be alive. They're glad to have a home. And they love to come to church. I'm going to tell you about them. They love to come to church to play with their friends more than hear this preacher. I promise you that. They're more excited about seeing their best buddy at church than they are about worshiping God because they don't understand that yet. But that's okay. We don't expect them to. But what we do expect them to know is that church is a happy place and that we're happy to go there. And it's not something we do. It's something we are. And we want them to know that Jesus Christ loves them and cares for them as he would for a sheep that was lost. He'll leave 99 just persons and go out and find that one sheep. And he's not willing that one of his little ones should perish. 
Don't ever underestimate a child and his perspective and his importance to the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 15, it's in that context. He says this. Moreover, on the heels of this talking about offense and little ones. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. That's what the Bible says. Now let me read it to you how we do it. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, go and tell your neighbor about it. Go. Call the pastor. Go. Tell your Sunday school teacher. Or we do this. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, stay at home. Soak for three weeks. Come on. Cut him off and not show him your warmth and affection. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, don't shake his hand to church. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, do not love him. Let your feelings toward him be cooled down. Come on, preach, brother. Come on. That's what we do, but that's not what it says to do. Moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, in other words, if you are the offended, not the offender. The offended because this, why do it? Because this is the example of God. God was not the offender. He was the offended. Oh, yes. And it is he who took the initiative to come to you and I and to deal with the problem. We sit down here as the offenders of God. And here is God instead of sulking in heaven, instead of bad-mouthing us, he just came to us and he died on the cross and said, I love you. And I want to reconcile you unto me. If you'll repent of your sin and you'll believe in me, I will make you mine. Hallelujah. You can be my child forevermore. You are not acting like Christ. That if in your offense you're pouting and sulking and talking to others about it. You're not being Christ-like you're being worldly. If you've got an issue with someone, if you've been hurt by somebody, if someone has offended you and they've done something that's causing you to stumble, it's affecting your Christian experience, it's affecting your prayer life, it's affecting your marriage, it's affecting your worship, I'm telling you, then what you've got to do is go to the offender. Go to the offender. Tell him his fault. Between... Thee and him alone. Hello? Alone. Just you and him. Just the offender and the offended. I'm glad when God dealt with me and when God deals with you and your sins, he didn't go blab it to the world. I tell you what he does. It's you and God. Right in that moment, buddy, it's just you and Jesus. And he's dealing with your heart. And he's not telling the world about it. He's just letting you know that he knows. Oh, glory to God. He lets you know that he knows where you're at and what's going on in your life. And you have to need to bow and say, here I am, Lord Jesus. Thank you for coming. Now, if you do this, and he says, if you have, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. 
You've gained your brother. I thought he was already your brother. But if your brother has offended you and you go to him and you tell him his fault, tell him what he's done. Now let us understand that if you want a commentary on how to go to your brother, because it's not just going, there's a particular way in which you go. You've got to go to the Sermon on the Mount and read Matthew chapter 7, and that will tell you there's an overriding principle. Matthew 7, verse 12, I think it is. And, he, and I, I spoke it to you, I believe, this past well, Sunday afternoon. He said, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. In other words, you're going to approach a man and Tell him about a fault. Tell him about offended. You're already, he's in a, in a bad spot. You're going to put him on the defensive uh, and you're already in a situation where the devil can work a heyday. It's a delicate situation and you got to make sure that, hey, I'm the offended. He is the offender, but I want to go to him in a way so that, that it's the way that I would want him to come to me if I were the offender and he were the offended. I'm going to tell you, nobody, I say nobody but Jesus uh, has ever come to us uh, in any such a, a pure way than God has come to us. He didn't come to us and hit us upside the head. He don't come to us and blast us and say, you did this and you did this. There's no mean spirit when he comes to us. He simply tells us our sin. He simply illuminates what we've done wrong. And then he says, here's the cross. Here's the door of reconciliation. Here's your way back home. Oh, glory to God. Yes, on that cross. Jesus didn't say, lift me up on the cross and I'll be repulsive and I'll push men down and I will condemn them. No, he said, I will draw all men unto me. You've got to go with a winsome spirit. If you're going to gain your brother, your spirit must be winsome. If you go in a spirit of hypocrisy, a spirit of criticism, a spirit of condemnation, a spirit that is not interested in reconciliation, but simply proving your side of the case. Simply making sure that you're vindicated. Simply making sure that the other person admits that they did wrong. You messed up from the start. You're done. You're toast, and you're not going to gain your brother. So there's an attitude about it. There's an attitude you got to do, but he said, if this, you gained your brother, at this point, you can have success if unity is restored. The offense is taken care of. So we didn't stop the offense from coming, but doing it the Lord's way fixed it and dealt with it. And now you've gained a brother. And can I tell you something? You confirm in your love to a brother like that, that that brother will be closer to you than he was before. Because he knows that you love him and he how much you cared for him and you weren't there to try to beat him down. You wanted to have unity in the body of Christ. Now watch this. However, sometimes they don't hear. But if you will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So he says, if he won't hear thee now, he doesn't indicate there should be any time lapse here. Obviously, you've had this first meeting and it just simply did not go well. He did not hear you. He did not listen to what you have to say. Now, you need to understand something at this point. This is serious business. This is serious business. Please understand, this is serious business. And can I tell you, God is watching us, but can I tell you, our children are watching us and our children watch how we handle our problems. Our children watch how we handle our, we want our children to have perfect relationships with their playmates, but our relationships aren't perfect. 
Hello? Now listen to me. You better make sure when you go to your brother that your cause is just. If it's petty, if it's something that this person isn't going to remember because you've sat on it for 15 years or 15 months and you go to them, you did this and you did this and you did that and they're like, and they're just shaking their head like, what, what, what are you talking about? I, 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 when? I, I don't remember any of that. And it's because you sat on it for 15 months instead of going to your brother. Now, this is practical, but listen to what I've got to say. In other words, when you go to a brother, I'm telling you it better be serious. Why? Because if your brother doesn't hear, he can get kicked out of the church for this. So you make sure that the offense is so serious It is so serious that if it's not rectified, it merits putting him out of the church. And if your offense doesn't merit someone putting him at being put out of the church because it's not rectified, I'm going to tell you, you better swallow it and relieve, get some love from God and say, Lord, fill me with the love of God because this is too petty and it isn't something that should divide us. I'm telling you right now, there does need to be a sense that this is not something that's petty. Because you might find out that it might turn on you. So be mature about it. This is not stuff that's for folks that just want to try again to be vindicated. Now listen. So he goes. He has a case. And then he says, I want you to go get. That didn't work. Just go. So you leave there. and You go. Now you got to call two brothers. And now they got to get involved. One or two brothers. Now someone else will hear about it. Now you're justified in telling someone else what's going on. And say, I need you to go speak and I need you to hear their side. I need you to hear what's going on. And you are the one still taking the initiative. The offended is still taking the initiative. Mm. Do you know how many times I wonder God has come to some of us before we ever turned? Oh, my. It came to us and we didn't hear him. Oh, yes. And then someone else preached. And there's another witness and another witness. And it got deeper and we didn't hear him. Oh, my. If you do that enough, God will cut you off. I'm not telling you three strikes and you're out with God as it is here. I'm just telling you something that God is showing that there is a course and a path. And it's not just that you toss it off because you we're not vindicating. So now you involve two or three others and you go because it must be established. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, this is a tough case now. You've got someone now that is hardening their heart. They've rejected the love of a brother. They've rejected the love of two or three brothers They've been talked to twice. They've been told this and they are still obstinate and unrepentant. And the Lord says, now take them to the church and tell it unto the church. I do not think, and in the context of this, I think this will will become clear. But I do not think when he says, tell it to the church, that that means everybody, everybody in the church needs to hear about it. That's not necessarily the case. The church can have those that represent them. There can be representatives of the church. In other words, what would you do if you had a church of 500? You don't have to take one situation between two brothers and tell it to 500 people in the church. 
and let 500 people vote on it. That's not even wise. But tell it to the church. Find out men in the church who are wise and able to judge matters. Get you representatives, men who represent the church of Jesus Christ and can speak for the body, seasoned men who are wise in the word, who understand relationships, who they themselves are an example of holiness and an example of truth, an example of faithfulness, and get them to judge it. So in other words, the decision that they make now is going to be represented of the church. The church has that power to organize itself under the authority of Jesus Christ. You don't have to. Now the church at some point is going to find out what's happened. But to bring a case before two, three hundred people is not wise. It's not even practical. So that's not what the Lord is espousing. He's espousing and saying that the church, its representation has got to now hear this. But if he doesn't hear the church and he neglects that, I would tell you to even come to this point, he's got to be very obstinate if he knows he's going to sit before a church court and he's going to reject their counsel and reject their love and reject their wisdom. This person is now a very portrait of obstinacy. In other words, this person has now manifested that they do not possess the love of Christ. They have no concern for the unity of the church. They have no concern for the love of the brethren. They have no concern for the body of Christ being able to operate effectively and thereby they have proven indeed that they are not saved. Do you hear me? That if you cannot reconcile to a brother who has come to you in honesty and you can't get the thing taken care of, either we've got folks that are utterly ignorant and unwise or we've got somebody who's unsaved. Hello? Yes. That's why this is important because this offense should be of such a nature that it should prove that this person, if they do not reconcile it, that they themselves are as a heathen and a publican. A heathen is just a rank sinner, a Gentile, someone who is without the knowledge of God, someone who doesn't know God. A publican is somebody who has been a part of a religious community but has been ostracized and banished from that community. The Jews, the publicans were Jewish people. They were Jewish people that had been a part of the Jewish community, raised in Jewish homes, part of the covenant of Abraham, but they sold their soul to Rome. They sold themselves to be a tax collector for Rome and they took on Rome's attitude and they took on Rome's policies and they collected taxes, oftentimes more than they're supposed to collect and they cheated their own countrymen and so Jews shunned them. The Jews put them out. They banished them and they shunned them. They wanted nothing to do with publicans. And that's what's going on here. Here's a man and a woman that's been a part of a Christian community, a religious community, but they've shown that they're friends of the world instead of friends of the church. They've been talked to for three times by a brother, by a team of brothers, by a church court, and they've rejected the counsel, the wisdom, the love, the prayer. They've rejected the appeals for unity, the biblical appeal for truth. They've turned all of that aside and shown they have not the love of God. In other words then push them out as an outsider they're no longer a part of the body of Christ here's the problem now I wanted, I wanted to say something here this is 
I'll show you in a moment the idea of the Lord's presence, but it's presence in judgment. This is judgment. The church is carrying out a judgment. And the Lord says, I'm telling you, you do this. Cast him out. To you, he is now a heathen. He's a sinner and he's a publican. He is a religious outcast. And he said, I'm telling you, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven or shall have already been bound in heaven. Now, I can tell you, God has already put him out before we did. God knew the heart. God's already dealt with them. If they've had a sin, a true sin and an offense, and that's why I say this ought to be something in support. Do you understand that the church is working in cooperation with heaven and demonstrating heaven's authority here on earth? That's why. That's why this is serious business. Take care of your offenses. Quickly deal with them. Many times they, I would say probably 90% of them will be settled on the first town. And the first step is always the hardest. If you can get by the first step, the second and third are not difficult. But the first step's the hardest because I believe the devil knows that most of them are solved on the first step. Most all of church conflict would be resolved if we just follow this process and probably 90% of it will be resolved just going through the first step. Now listen to me carefully. There's some things that's implied here. And I want to share that quickly before I get to these other passages. But there's some things that's implied in this, and that is, number one, there has to be some basis on how the church gives recognition to who is a member of their community. That you recognize this as a brother. You can't take a brother before the church if the church doesn't recognize him as a brother. Hello? There has to be some basis upon which the church recognizes its membership. Is he a member of our community? Is he a part of this body? The Lord doesn't tell us now. The sister told us tonight, I don't know if this person was saved or unsaved that she was dealing with, but I'm telling you that right now it's okay in the world. You can go and, and you can apologize to an employer. If you're a Christian, you ought to. If you did somebody wrong, but you're the offender, okay? You go take care of that. But I'm going to tell you something right now. If somebody on your job is a sinner and they offend you, this is not a process God says follow with them. This is not a process for sinners and Christians. It's a process for Christians only. Only. In other words, you do not go to your boss and say, sir, I would like to tell you that your cussing me out was a sin and I'm offended. <laughs> well, your Christianity was just proven to be mighty weak. No, sir, you're going to have to take that one, okay? You're going to have to take that as persecution. You're going to take it as living in the world, whatever it is. But it's not going to hurt as bad in that sense because that's the world. You expect that from the world. We don't expect the world to cater to us. We don't expect the world to love us. We don't expect the world to treat us like Christians. But we do have that expectation in the church. The world doesn't have the love of God. The church does. So I say to you, we got a problem. I'm going to answer this brother's question tonight that he raised in the testimony about a particular preacher, and you wonder why God doesn't zap him. I'm going to answer that tonight, at least give you one answer, because it's not God's job. It's our job. we got a problem in the church world today. We got so many independent ministries and so many independent churches that there's no accountability. 
And the church doesn't police itself. So sins can take place in the body of Christ. Men can get in the pulpits and be arrogant and teach things that are wicked and there's no church government to call them to account. It's not God's fault. It's our fault because we as the church and the church world rather have let it go home. That's why I just simply, the more I live, and I don't know where this tape's going to go, but you're going to hear it. I do not believe independent churches are following the biblical pattern because there's no accountability outside of that local church. I'm going to tell you the pastors in a church need an accountability beyond the congregation. They need other men and a government that is over them, a board of elders that are over the local board of elders that can say if there's an elder in a church that's going astray it shouldn't be the congregation's job to chase them down there ought to be some godly men that are ordained hallelujah and have an authority and can say hey sir you're in the church and you're accountable and you're teaching false doctrine this is not going to be permitted if the church were to kick that man out and put him out and cut off his money source Turn him over to the IRS. That's about the same as turning him over to the devil. So they learn not to blaspheme. Turn him over to the IRS because I'll guarantee you their books aren't right. We could deal with it, but we're not dealing with it. The greatest problem in America is that the church has not policed itself. Now listen and watch what he says. Verse 19. Because the rest of this is where we often go astray. Again, I say unto you. Now, what has he said to us? He's told us. He said, whatever you bind, you bind it. It's done. You loose it. It's free. This is earth cooperating with heaven. This is the visible church carrying out the invisible Christ will. And then he says, I say unto you that if two of you, notice now, notice now, he's gotten away from the two or three and mentions only two. That's going to take us back to verse 15 because this thing started with just two, the offender and the offended. That's where it all starts. It all starts with an offender and the offended. And if any two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now, I know that there's been this sense that in, 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 the, in the Christendom today, we, we, we call this a prayer of agreement, but we've ripped it out of its context and just say, hey, we got any two or three of you agree. It doesn't say two or three, it just says two. Any two of you and say, brother, let's just agree for this thing. Let's pull this out of the air. Hey, I need a new car. How about agreeing with me that we have a new car? Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's not unbiblical for you to ask a brother to, to bind together with you in prayer about something. That's not problematic, and that's not against Scripture. I'm just telling you, this passage doesn't give us that. This passage is not about two brothers just uh, dealing with a particular situation or, or a particular need and they say, hey, just agree with me that we can have this need met and we'll pray together and God's going to meet this need. Well, you can bind together with brothers. There's nothing wrong with that and praying with one another and encouraging one another and agreeing together. That's not a problem. But I can tell you in the context of this, it is not in the context of a need. It's in the context of reconciliation. 
And it goes back to what James said, that he said, confess your faults one to another. And that's what he said. You got a brother, tell him his fault between you and him. But confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I'll tell you where this first prayer of agreement comes in. It's this. You see, after this brother has went to this brother and told him his fault, the offender or the offended has went to the offender, told him his fault, and even when the offender says, I am sorry, I am sorry, please forgive me, I was wrong. Can I tell you something? That's the most that can be done at that moment to reconcile and to rectify the matter, but it's not over. I'm sorry doesn't heal a hurt. I'm sorry doesn't relieve emotional stress. I'm sorry doesn't take away pain. It sets the path towards taking it away. It charts the course. It opens the door. It gets the ball rolling. But I'm going to tell you something. It is now that you got to go to church and you still have got to reach across the aisle and shake the hand of a man who's offended you and has got a history of hurting you. And now you've got to act as if it's never happened. You've got to love him like it's never taken place. You've got to love him like it just never. But the fact is it did happen. And that's why those two need to agree right then and there when they're reconciled and say, brother, let's agree together. We're going to take this to prayer and we're going to ask God to heal us and we're going to ask God to bind us up and we're going to ask God that we can overcome any temptation that the devil throws our way and trying to divide us and throwing us up in our path and you and I are going to love each other with a hot love. We're going to pray for God to fill our hearts with love. Let's agree together and you get two brothers praying for one another after you've had an offense and I'm telling you you'll get victory in the house of God but it's not enough simply to make it known and say I'm sorry you've got to pray for a baptism of the love of God so that you can carry on after you've had a problem and a conflict verse 20 for where two or three are gathered together in my name there am I in the midst of them. Context. I've done it. And it's not an untruth. It's not an untruth. We get together and you normally have 60 people in the building and there's 20. The first thing, if we want to quote this scripture, well, praise God. Where there are two or three, he's in the midst. I've done it. Okay, well, it's not an untrue statement. He is in our midst. He is with us. But that's not what this passage was about. Jesus was not talking about here in a worship context. He was not talking about it in a context of Christ being with us. I'm telling you, we're his body. Hallelujah. When we come together and gather for worship, the Holy Ghost is with us to edify. It doesn't matter if we've got 15 or we've got 55. The Holy Ghost can be present no matter what. So that's the truth. But in this verse, it was not alluding to to God's presence in worship. It was alluding to the fact that he says this, you bound on earth what's been bound in heaven. You've loosed 
loosed on earth what's been loosed in heaven. The church has made a visible decision, a, a, a present decision that has affected the course of a man's life. It has cast him out of the church. It's turned him over to the devil. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, I, when you gather together to do that, when those two or three gathered and they made that judgment and cast that man out, I'm telling you, I was with them. In other words, it was my judgment too. It was what I said. It was what I did. Oh, we've got to understand that when the church will police itself, the Lord will be with us in that judgment. The Lord is not with the church that overlooks offenses and sins. Because Jesus judges the church. And he's already put them out and he's waiting for us to recognize it and follow a process that will see to that. Or if there's an offense, he's already dealing with them. I guarantee you, if it's serious enough, the Lord's probably already dealt with them. Just like this sister in her testimony, such a testimony I appreciate because that's evidence. That's evidence of the love of God. When you have said something and it didn't go well and you could see somebody was hurt or offended and you can sleep on that, something's wrong somewhere. When you can't sleep, it says the Lord isn't here. It says there's a conscience. It says the Spirit of God is in you. I'm telling you something. If you sit on your fence and let it sit and sit and sit, you will harden your own heart. You will deceive your own self and you will close the door of reconciliation reconciliation when you do not deal with it quickly so this is where we are the Lord has promised we have got today a church world that says I don't want to offend I don't want to offend but by that we do not mean a biblical concept of offense. We don't have a biblical concept. Our concept of offense is the idea of making somebody be displeased with us. Our idea of offense is the idea that someone's feelings got hurt. And what we want is a gospel and a life and a Christianity that never ever rubs anybody the wrong way. We want a Christianity so smooth, so pliable, so plastic, so malleable that it'll fit in any situation. It'll mold and adapt to any lifestyle. It can be accepted by any pagan anywhere. And it's a Christianity so watered down that it makes no impact on the world and even the world has no respect for it. I can never respect something that has no conviction. I, can, I, I abhor it in the sense that it's a wicked religion. But I will tell you, the devotion they show to it is far greater than the devotion that Christians often show to our Christ. Because they give themselves to it and they surrender to it. So my challenge to you tonight is this. We're the kingdom of God. And the way, one of the ways in which we manifest to the world that Jesus is in our midst is whenever we fix our offenses 
Christ's way. The offender, offended goes to the offender. And a three-step process that if not heeded results in the severance from somebody from the body of Christ. Now, God's willing, Sunday afternoon, I'm going to deal with reasons why people are severed. And look at those passages in the Bible. Because this is important. I'm going to tell you one of the reasons I feel it's important. I believe God's dealing with me. One, unity is one of our strongest characteristics. Christ prayed for it in John 17. The unity of the church is critical. You can't let stuff go on between you and think you're going to come together and worship and it's all going to be all right. You understand? I don't know what's going on between you and a brother. There, there's a ton that goes on in this church that I, I have no clue. All right? A lot of things goes on in my life you don't have a clue. I'm, I'm not around you all the time. I don't know who you call. I don't know who may offend you. I don't know what somebody said to you Sunday. I don't know how someone treated you this week. I have no clue of that. And quite frankly, if you've been offended by something, I shouldn't be hearing about it unless you've already went to them and you're in the second stage of it and you want me to now go with you. I should never have to hear of it because you should have dealt with it. But can I tell you, in the hour in which we live, offenses and opportunities of offense are going to arise even more so than they've ever been in the church. And if we don't guard our unity, if we don't follow Christ's way, and if we don't keep the church pure and purge out the leaven, we are going to be destroyed in this last hour. Fix the issue. Fix the issue. Do what you need to do. Amen. And get filled with the love of God. Oh, hallelujah. That'll solve most of it. 90% of it you'll never even have to deal with because you'll be able to cover it by fervent charity for your brother and an understanding of who they are and a patience and a long-suffering and a gentleness and a willingness to bear all things. You'll be able to bear it. You'll be able to deal with it because you're filled with the love of God. Uh 